Our scripture reading is also from Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 25, the introductory part um, of the letter to the Philippians. Chapter 1, our, our main verse will be verse 21 that we hope to consider in our sermon. Hear God's true and eternal word. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops, or elders, and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere. And without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places." And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not, I do not know. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. 
Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Amen. Paul, who wrote the letter to the Philippians that that we have read, and we again return um, to chapter 1, when he... When he first arrived in Philippi, you'll remember that soon after he met with those ladies who were praying at the riverside and Lydia was converted and she offered to host the missionaries, Paul and Silas, that soon after there were some events that led to their arrest and Paul and Silas were in prison. At the time he's writing to the Philippians, it it, it would have been around 10 years after that time in prison. And Paul is in another prison. Now he's in Rome. He's in possibly what is called house arrest. He is yet shackled by a soldier, with a soldier, 24-7. He's able to receive visitors, but he's not able to, to leave at his leisure. And in prison, Paul is contemplating the two possibilities before him. The the passage that we have read lead us to understand this. He was not in prison indefinitely. Um, It is not that they're contemplating maybe life in prison. There there are two possibilities. Either he will be um, released if he's found not guilty and he will be freed. Or he will be condemned and be executed. He has appealed to Caesar and he's waiting for a hearing. And the accusations that are against him that the Jews have formulated are that he has provoked civil unrest. Now, Saul, Paul knows very well how dangerous it is to be in the accusation side of the group of Jews that he is under. And this is why I almost use the name Saul. Because see, when he was Saul, he was on that side. And that's, he knows what those with that heart are willing and able to do. Remember, Paul himself said that he was one guilty of murder. We meet him when he stands beside those who are stoning the first martyr of the church, Stephen. And so here he is in prison, and he knows the heart that his enemies has against him, because he used to have that heart against Christians. And so he knows very well that he might die, that they will not rest until they see the, the life, um, the, the death sentence passed upon him. And, and, and so he's contemplating those two things. What is it? What is it that I would prefer? What is, what is better? And, and with this very context, it's hard to even believe that this letter to the Philippians that was written by Paul can also be called the Epistle of Joy. Because you'll notice, you'll remember, not too long ago, we did cover all of Philippians, and we see joy written all throughout the epistle. This is the epistle where Paul is saying, um, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. And in this little portion that we have read, we have read joy um, several times. 
And he has said that they have reason to rejoice even though he's in jail. Um, he rejoices in many fronts. We, we could say at least these three things. Yes, he is imprisoned, but as he mentioned, the gospel continues to be preached, so he rejoices. He is in prison, but there is the possibility that he'll be released for their good, so he rejoices if that comes to happen. And he may be executed, but as we read, that means that he will see his Savior and be with him, so he rejoices. And, and, and so with the, with the sad context of this letter, where he's in jail and with the possibility of being executed... It's still the epistle of joy because of at least these three reasons and many more throughout the whole letter. Now, there's an element of irony right at the very beginning before we see our our first and second points. Just a little note here of an element of irony. And, And this is precious. This is what only a believer is able to say. It will sound ridiculous. It'll sound ironic to the unbeliever. But look what's happening. And think of this thought that here Paul is musing about these things. And I do not doubt that he doubted about these things or, or questioned them out loud because he was evangelized for, evangelizing for sure the soldier that was with him. That, that is the only way that his bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. He's not saying um, um, just people know that I'm here in prison. He's saying people in the palace know that I'm here in prison. And he had those guards that were 24-7 with him, taking their turns. And so he probably evangelized one, and then the next, and then the next. And if they would change, and if it would be the same, he would continue upon what he was evangelizing. And as these men went back to their homes and back to the palace, they would tell them what was going on as they took care of this man, Paul. And it was possible that there were conversations like this where he was contemplating, I might die, I might live. I'm not really sure what I prefer. And there were probably some soldiers who would say, "Um, Paul, isn't that a waste of time? What do you mean what you would prefer? It's not your choice. You're at the mercy of the Roman Empire. The men who rule the world are the men who put you in prison. It's not your choice, Paul. And even if that conversation ever happened, it was still a reality that this would be so ironic that here's this man wondering, what do I choose, life or death? And, and when, when it had absolutely nothing to do with him, what would happen to him? And yet you know what Paul could say. Paul could say, I'm, I'm not talking about what I would choose as if I have the power to make it happen. But I'm talking about what I prefer. And, and this, in a sense, shows who has the upper hand. If you are in prison and you're a believer and there's an execution day, it's not the state, it's not the communist regime, it is not whoever is there persecuting you who has the upper hand. It's still God. And what will happen to you you have the privilege to say what you would prefer. And there's a way in which what Paul is saying, there's a tie. Because when he says that I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, and yet, of course, to live and serve the church, there's a sense in which there's a tie. 
But there's a sense in which Paul is making very clear what he would prefer. And he says it in verse 23, be with Christ, which is far better. That little phrase, don't be mistaken, that's a window into Paul's heart. And he's saying, if I were to die, I would prefer it. And so if people were to tell him, Paul, why are you wasting time? If you're going to die, you're going to die. He's saying, I'm not wasting time. I'm meditating upon what it is that I would prefer based on what would give God glory most. And I want to be honest, I would like to be with Jesus. And so let us leave it at that and let's go to our first point. And we will, at the end, we will see where Paul, in a sense, concludes as he's debating. So our first point, to live is Christ. And our second point is the next part of that phrase, um, but to die is gain. That's verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we will, we will look at that full phrase from the first part of the phrase the whole sentence, the first phrase, and then the second phrase. And, and the way, and one reason, I just want to give also this one reason why we're looking at this passage. There's really two reasons. Um, one of the reasons is, as, as I've been contemplating, congregation, that, that it, yes, I do have the end of this month and then the next month that will be my last messages here. I've been thinking in terms of, the precious passages in God's Word that I still have not preached from in these years that I've been here. And I began to think of what these passages are. And, and I'm, I'm hoping, um, if not every Sunday, maybe most of them, to bring these, these classic um, having to be preached on passages in, in a ministry to a congregation. And as we hear them, I'm sure we have preached through Philippians but it was looking at the Holy Epistle. I want to, in this sermon, preach on this phrase where maybe some, are, some unbelievers even know this phrase exists, that Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We want to look at what this verse means. How could Paul say this? Can you say this? Can you say this with all honesty? And then the second reason we're here is, this is, this is to be under that theme of evangelism, the sovereignty of God in evangelism. Um, Paul is a missionary. He is an evangelist. And he's about to die. He, he might end up his career and ministry as an evangelist. But it is the sovereignty of God that impels him to be in this choice that he's already made very clear what he prefers personally. But what he's willing to do, why is he willing to do what at the end of the day he does not prefer? It's only because of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is that which impels us in our evangelism to continue going. Because we know it's not in our strength and it's not up to us. We are simply tools here in the hand of God. And so, to live is Christ. What, what did Paul, why did Paul say this? In what way did he say this? Um, how can you say this? And, and the first thing I want to look at is how this phrase can be filled and how it is filled by different people. And, and let us be honest, if we fill it, 
in any of these ways. Because as we look around and as we have relationships, we know it's not everyone who's living a life that even if they don't say it, that it would mean that for them to live is Christ. Well, how is it that many say it? The first thing that comes to my mind is when you think of how some of us and some Maybe being very honest is that sometimes we enter into modes of life that this is kind of how we're living. If we grasp money and would not let it go, and yet we may use the excuse that we're just being frugal, but, but we know our hearts. We know how much we may value our possessions. If it's so dear to us that we would cry, that we would not know how to live if we had no more of it? Could it be that some of us are living this way? For to me, to live is wealth, prosperity, profit. Many live as if they don't even have time to pause and read their Bibles because they need to work or come to church because they need to work. Or read the Bibles with their families because they need to go to their office and work. Because for to them to live is money. They may give excuses, but the Lord knows the hearts. Instead of saying, for to me to live is Christ, many do say in this world, for to me to live is riches. There are many who say it literally. Others seem to declare, for to me to live is health and well-being. Because their lives are consumed with, with, with supplements and exercise and sports. And, and again, to, to the detriment of their souls. They, they don't have time for devotion with the Lord. They don't have time for prayer meetings. They don't have time to, to be in worship services. But they do have time to exercise and to try to be as healthy as they can. And the Bible does say that exercise is of some profit. But see, it's only of some profit. It is godliness that has value for all things, for this present life and even the life to come. And, 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 and so we have to think, how much of my time is consumed in the practice of godliness or the practice of my own, um, my own well-being? That will show whether we say, for to me to live is Christ or for to me to live is my own health. Others seem to say, And again, maybe moments in our lives, this is what we're saying. For to me, to live is pleasure. And so lives are consumed with sensuality or love of drink or the pursuit of relationship because you want pleasure through relationships or or food and the sin of gluttony. That is, in essence, saying for to me, to live is my success, my my, excuse me, my, my own pleasure. The next way that some may be living is saying, for to me to live is fame or power or influence or followers or likes or glory. How many friends do I have? How many people approve of what I'm doing? It, it is like a life obsessed with saying, for to me to life is success or my business. And, and the people that Paul is talking about really enter that realm in the religious domain. These men who are preaching Christ out of envy and strife, and then they are, they are not preaching sincerely but of contention, they were 
only interested in their own glory and their religious fame. And just to explain kind of what was happening there, it was this. Paul, Paul had his adversaries even in, in, the, in the professing community. And they were people who were jealous that Paul had a lot more followers and a lot more success in his ministry than they did. And now Paul's in jail, so they're happy. And they're thinking, good, we're going to gain ground. And see, Paul is happy because they're preaching the gospel, at least. I don't care that you gain ground. As long as Christ is being preached, you're doing it out of strife. You're doing it out of jealousy. That's not good for you. That's between you and the Lord. But as for me, I'm fine. I'm not jealous of you. I'm happy that the gospel is going forward. You you see the heart of Paul. But he's revealing that for these people, if they were to say the phrase, it would be for for to me to live, is religious fame. Beloved, this is a a temptation we we all have. We, We see it in the ministry. And these churches that that have a lot of numbers and a lot of numbers, there's a temptation for the leadership, for the pastor to think, this is what I want. I want this religious glory. How is it that we're living? See, many people fill it in with all those things. But instead of all those things, Paul is saying, for to me, to live is Christ. Before we even look at the phrase proper, notice also this one thing. Um, For Paul to say that in those days, and even for you to say that today, you need to understand how that sounds strange. There's, There's an element of strangeness for anyone who would know certain things about Jesus. Maybe, Maybe a lot of things about Jesus, but only at an earthly level, and only with like... Um, um, physical eyes and not spiritual eyes. Because think of what Paul is saying, for to me to live is Christ. And then somebody would know something of Christ and say, wait, Paul, um, why are you saying that your life is summarized in, in view and in the focus of a man whom by what I know he was born in obscurity in the lowly town of Bethlehem. He was raised in even a, a, another lowly town of Nazareth. He had no home. He, he lived out of charity. Um, even the tomb that he had was a borrowed tomb. Um, he had no college degree. He had no steady career. He, he had no company in his name, no wife, no children. He had no army, no palace, no throne. And then he died as a criminal. He died with a double condemnation. He was considered accursed. He was scourged. He was mocked. He was nailed to a tree. And you're saying to live is him? You see, at an earthly level, that's all people understand about Jesus. And they might say, okay, he was a good teacher in the midst of all that. Is that enough? to live for and to spend your whole life with all this danger that you'll end up in jail for the sake of this one man Jesus but I've heard all these things about Jesus but see it's because Paul knew that all these things I just finished telling you that in the eyes of of humans who do not know grace they think those are bad things but Paul knew that those were absolutely necessary things Every single item I just finished telling you is in elements of prophecies, even specific and to the dot, that had to happen for this to be the true Messiah. And so Paul knew that these were not things that would shy 
or should shy anyone away from believing in Jesus. These were not problems. These were proofs. These were the very things that made my eyes be opened that He is then the promised Messiah. And if He is the promised Messiah, these are the things I have in Christ. And so now we're going to look at a few things um, that Paul is meaning when he says, for to me to live is Christ. And, and we'll look at at least five things. We, we, you'll see at the end of them or even in the midst of them that there's a necessity to say more than just one thing because there's a dimension of things in saying for to me to live is Christ. It is, you could say it's one thing. It's not that it's five different things. It's really one united thing, but these are all the different dimensions in this one united thing. Think of a, a beautiful diamond that is one, but you look upon it and you can hardly see the boundaries because the shine and the brilliance is so great. And all of those little sparks come from those little tiny um, um, cuts, and, and, but they're all parts of that one diamond. And so these are at least five of them. The first thing is this, that in Paul's mind he understood. He was speaking in essence this way. I I do believe this is like um, the overall look at what Paul meant by, for to me to live is Christ, that Christ is the very summary of life. This is what I'm doing in this race, is is looking at the phrase and looking at it almost like, like math, you know how we see this in grammar very often. He says, for to me to live Christ. You notice in your King James Bible that is is in italics because is is not there. And in the Greek, wherever the verb to be was very clearly implied, they just abbreviated it and took it away. And so Paul is saying, for me to live Christ. So mathematically, you could put the little equation mark. And Paul is literally saying, life? You want me to give a summary of life? And see what Paul is doing. He's not saying money. He's not saying pleasure. He's not saying fame. He's not saying glory. He's saying life equals, to me, Christ. Christ is the summary of life to me. If, if I think of what life is, well, then it is a relationship with Christ. It is Christ as my maker, Christ as my savior, Christ as my Lord. This is what life is to me. Air can be life to you. Christ is air to me. Life is your, your system biologically working and your mind be, being on in a process. Well, Christ is all of that to me. Christ is my heartbeat. Christ is air through my lungs and into my cells and muscles. Christ, He's the one who puts all the neurons together and makes my mind work. Life, Christ. That's the first thing that he means by this. And secondly, he's also saying this, therefore, it is Christ who gives me life. And you'll be able to say, for to me to live is Christ, is this is what you truly, honestly believe. That Christ is a summary of life. That Christ is, in essence, the source of life. How do I have life? It's through Christ. Without Him, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. Do not be mistaken, beloved. The fact you walk, the fact your lungs are pumping blood and your, your, your heart is pumping blood and, oxygen, and your lungs are oxygenating that blood and, and your mind is working. Those are not signs of life. Spiritual. 
Those are signs of life, biological. If you do not know Jesus, you are dead spiritually. And and this is how it works. Yes, you may live 90 years, but the moment your life expires, you go to the grave. Your soul will await the resurrection of the dead. And when judgment comes, there will be the pronouncement of the second death. So as horrid and as gruesome as the first death is, all those who die without Christ will experience a second death, and that will be an eternal death. But Christ gives you life. So see, for you to say, for to me to live is Christ, is because you understand He's the summary of life, and you understand He's the source of life. And then secondly... Um, thirdly, I mean, Paul is saying it is Christ who is our example of life. He's the sample of life. He's the model life. If, if I think of everyone I've seen in this world, and Paul knew of Moses, he knew of Abraham, he, he knew of Jacob, and he knew of Daniel, and, and many of these had exemplary lives, but Jesus is our, 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 our supreme example of life. And the word supreme can, can help you remember. He's the source of life. He's a summary of life. He's a supreme example of life. I look to Jesus, and that's the life I want to imitate. He, he's, he's not the, only the one who gives you life. He's the one that you look to in order to live like him. He's our source of life, and he's our example of life. And that's what Paul is meaning when he says, for to me to live is Christ. And that's the third thing. The fourth thing, it is, it is basically Paul is saying, it is Christ whom we seek to glorify in life. Um, it's, it's like looking at Christ as the very end of life. If I think of life, well, Christ is the end. I, I want to live my life out of Christ, like Christ, and for the glory of Christ. Um, um, you see what I mean, that it's all one thing. It, it's, it's all these different dimensions of the, of the same thing. Paul is saying, it's not just I go to Christ so that I'm saved, and now I go to heaven, and I put Christ, as it were, on a shelf. No, he's my example, and he's my end. He's the one I want to see. He's the one I want to embrace. He's the one I want to praise for the rest of my life. And while I live here, I do everything for his honor and glory. For to me, to live is Christ. I want to glorify Christ. Christ. You see, there's that to it too. And then, and then fifthly, as I said, they were four. It is an, and and this, this plays a very crucial part in the heart of Paul, and it should in all of our hearts. And he reveals this in Philippians. He was saying, it is Christ whom I want to know. In many ways, this is the only way that you will learn He is the summary of life, that He is the source of life, that He is the example of life to follow. You need to know that example. And to know that He's the end and the one you want to glorify is if you know Him. Paul shows this very clear in Philippians 3, verse 8. He said, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things by loss. And, and see what Paul is saying. I, I, 
for me to live was circumcision, was that I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, was that I was a Jew. All of those things were things that I lived for. But I count all those things lost for the excellency, and look how he puts it, of the knowledge of Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them, but done that I may win Christ. And you see, he didn't just say Christ, but he said the knowledge of Christ. And, and this is very logical. He, he's thinking like this, the more I know about Jesus the more I know the example I am to follow, the more I know that he's the one that my life came from, the more I know he's the one I want to glorify. Because the more you know Jesus, the more you will love him, the more you'll want to serve him. And this is what he's saying. He, he, he said this, for to me to live is Christ, to the Galatians, in this way. Look at the words he used in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. He said, for to me to live is Christ. And here he's telling the Galatians, Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, reading through Matthew Henry, he brought this quote that shows this multifaceted reality to the phrase, for to me to live is Christ. He said, The glory of Christ ought to be the end of our life, the grace of Christ, the principle of our life, the word of Christ, the rule of it. The Christian life is derived from Christ and directed to Him. He is the principle, the rule, and the end of it. These are all the different facets. Now, can, can you, can I, like Paul, say this honestly? Think of how you're living. Think of the hours that you spent on the worldly, even necessary things. But think of the time you spent on the spiritual things. God's Word. Time in knowing Christ. This is a a rebuke that comes from, from Spurgeon, but also an encouragement. Let me read a portion from a sermon of his. He says, Have we not all good need to chasten ourselves because we must say that we have not lived for Christ as we should have done? And yet there are, I trust, a noble few, the elite of God's elect, a few chosen men and women on whose heads there is the crown and diadem of dedication, who can truly say, I have nothing in this world I cannot give to Christ. I have said it and mean what I have said. Take my soul and body's powers, all my goods and all my hours, all I have and all I am. Take me, Lord, and take me forever. These are the men who make our missionaries. These are the women to make our nurses for the sick. These are they that would dare death for Christ. These are they who would give of their substance for His cause, to His cause. These are they who would spend and be spent, who would bear ignominy and scorn and shame if they could but advance their master's interest. Now I look at Spurgeon and I I put him in one of these categories, but he didn't. Because he was looking at his sin and his personal life and thinking, I'm, I'm not really living this way. Beloved, are you living this way? Could you say with Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ.
And then if you honestly can't and you would chasten yourself as Spurgeon suggested, beloved, you can say this with the grace and power of the Spirit. Lord, help me to say and to really mean that to me, to live is Christ. And if you're able to say this, it's the only way you'll be able to say the second part and to die is gain. And so we look at this phrase, and to die is gain. This phrase, beloved, is born out of the first. When, when Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, what does that do to you? You look at death and you're able to say, and to die is gain. And now, beloved, as, as we look at this, let, let's think of Paul and put him in the context that he's in. This was one suffering man. He was suffering from enemies. He was suffering from persecutors, from the Jewish world, and from the Gentile world. And there were some of those who just wanted him in prison. There were many of those who wanted him dead. He is suffering from false friends. We're seeing some of them here. These weren't downright enemies, but they're in a sense were. And many times you wonder which, which you prefer. These are people who obviously are, are, are kind of worse friends than enemies. They're happy that Paul is in prison. Can you imagine how that would hurt you? You're in chains and you find out that so-and-so who used to say, I love you, is happy. Paul had people like that. And he knows that he might die. You remember that whole list of everything he suffered, the stoning and the scourging and, and, and the being in shipwreck. Most of that had already happened. He's here wondering if he'll live or he will die. Now notice what Paul is not saying. He's not saying, you know, this world is so hard. I have suffered so much. I think I prefer death. If you think that way, in a sense, it's like he's comparing heaven or earth. Do I prefer heaven or do I prefer earth? This is a very important principle to understand because nothing is farther from the truth than to say he's doing that. Anybody who stopped to consider, do I prefer heaven or earth? There's a sin even in doing this because how can you compare heaven and earth? There's no comparison. Of course, heaven is better than earth. Earth, there is sweat and there is toil and there is sin. And there is darkness, and there is sickness, and there is death. Obviously, heaven is better. But see, Paul Paul is not comparing those two. This is what he's comparing. He's comparing between serving Christ on this earth or being with Christ in heaven. And what is the common denominator of both of these? It is Christ and Christ. Christ here, Christ there. And so it's, it's really just a matter of how do I like to serve Christ better? In the mode of terrestrial living with all the soil and t- all, the, all the sweat and, and all the trials and all the tribulations? Is this what I prefer? Or do I prefer Christ in heaven where I have no sin or limitation and I can really praise Christ with all the perfection of the souls made righteous? So those who think... That, you know, I, I, I do want heaven because really this earth is so bad. The, the thing that there's a, the danger in this way of thinking, and you do hear believers talk this way, is that at the end of the day, they're really not wanting the Christ of heaven. They're just wanting the heaven of Christ. 
They're really part of that group whom Jesus would turn back and say, Why do you want the bread that perishes? You're just wanting pleasure for your bodies. And you know enough theology to know that heaven is a good place. And heaven is hard. You don't need theology for that. You just need to live. But the question is, do you want Christ? Do you want Jesus? And that's, that's why Paul, in his dilemma, is able to be very frank and say in verse 23, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Theologically speaking, we understand this. Isn't it better to see Christ with your own eyes? You know, this, this was such a desire of the, of the theologians in the ancient days. They were called the mystics because they, they really desired to see God so greatly. They, they, they understood it's not that I'm going to see them in any literal way. We know that no man can see God and die. But maybe if I pray and if I meditate and if I truly spend time in the Word and if I truly serve Him in this world, there may be a moment in my devotion I may have, and this is what they called it, the beatific vision. They wanted to see God in their devotion. And it is true that some went in that way too, too far in the sense where they're just wanting the experience. Because even that's the danger. You might just want the ecstasy and not the God and the Christ. But I believe as you read some of the writings of some of these men, um, Bernard of Clairvaux was one of, the, one of those, even Augustine had that heart. You see those who have a heart where, yes, I will serve the Lord here in this world, but I want to see Him so bad while I do it. I want to have a communion that is unbreakable, unbro- unbreakable and unbroken with my Creator. And so they, they, they didn't just went to prayer meetings and times of services. They made those times in their lives and in their walk. And they would set times for prayer because they wanted to be with their Lord so much. You know, one of the more modern men like that was David Brainerd. And you, and you read his devotionals, his, his, his diaries, and you see this. He just had this earnest of communion with God. And he was honest to say there were many times he felt his heart cold, but he prayed for longer than 20 minutes. And, and then my heart warmed and I felt like God was near. These are the kinds of things that Paul is saying he desires to be close to God. And that's why die is gain. I'll see him. I'll be with him. Matthew Henry says this, It is great gain, a present gain, everlasting gain. Death is a great loss to a carnal worldly man, for he loses all his comforts and all his hopes. But to a good Christian it is gain, for it is the end of all his weakness and misery and the perfection of his comforts and accomplishments of his hopes. It delivers him from all the evils of life and brings him to the possession of the chief good. But even as the Christian is thinking, yes, this heart is life, this life is hard, he's not thinking, I just want to leave it. He's thinking, I just want Jesus. I want him more. And so we see the heart of Paul. He's willing to go. What was Paul's ultimate choice? And I, and I close with this. When we read the phrase, for I am in a strait betwixt two, verse 23. Paul is basically saying, there's a tie. 
That very verse, he shows where his heart is. To be with Christ is far better. That's my heart's desire. But beloved, look what he does. He says in verse 24, Nevertheless, he's basically saying, Right now, I I, want to put my desire to the side. And nevertheless, to abide in the flesh, which means to live, is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. And and this is not a man saying, I'm not going to get my way, so I'll just live through it. He's basically saying, this is now, in a sense, what I prefer more. Because I know this is what God wants me to do. So this is where my heart is. That your rejoicing, verse 26, may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. So, beloved, I just want to close with this, with this comment. This man who says that life is so hard, but yes, and to go to heaven is better because I will see the Lord Jesus. He's saying, nevertheless, I'm ready to stay. See, this is what we're seeing. The sovereignty of God is giving strength for this evangelist to continue in the field. Even though going is far better, there's no comparison. Serving Christ on earth is better for now. What Paul is doing here is very akin to what Jesus did at Gethsemane, where Jesus said, Is there another cup? Pass this cup from me. But then he ends, But not my will, but thy will be done. And then God made clear, My will is that you do go to the cross and die as planned and as promised from eternity past. And do we see Jesus going to the cross saying, Well, it's not what I want, but I'll do it contentedly? No, He despised the shame and went to the cross. And this is what Paul is saying. I'm being tormented. There may be more sufferings. I might die in another prison. But I'm ready to live because it will be for the glory of God and for your good. It will bring joy to you. The believer is able to live this way. And if, if you'll remember the English lessons, and I just want to end with this little illustration, there's, there's a very sad reality in one of the characters of Shakespeare, Hamlet, who is absolutely despondent. The only thing that Hamlet and Paul have in common is that both were suffering. But look at the drastic contrast. Hamlet, yes, he's suffering greatly because as he was the successor of the crown, his uncle killed his father, his mother was seduced, and that uncle usurped the kingdom. And Hamlet is wondering, should I die or should I live? But his dilemma is that both of those are bad. And he's leaning toward the fact that dying might be worse because of the mysteries 
And he says this, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, he calls it, from whose realm no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than to fly to others that we know not of. And beloved, see, all I'm doing here is showing the contrast that is amazingly different from this poor man. That, of course, was, yes, in the mind of Shakespeare. But this is the mind of many people who only know their earthly existence. To live is dreadful. To die may be more dangerous. So I'll just go on living miserably. And Paul was saying, to die is what I prefer because I'll see my Savior. To live, yes, will have all of its drudgeries, drudgeries and difficulties, but it will be better for you. I will continue serving. I'll continue ministering. And so I'm happy to stay because you will rejoice. Paul is no Hamlet. Neither are you if you're a true believer. And I pray that every one of us may be able to say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And to share with this world that is so Hamlet-like that those aren't the only two choices, a suffering world or a mysterious death. You can have this world of Christ now and Christ forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we pray that Thou, Lord, through Thy Holy Spirit, would give us what, what Spurgeon even called this this chastisement, Lord, in whatever areas our soul needs. Lord, each and every one of us, help us, Lord, to be very honest that we would complete the phrase in a real way, for to me to live is blank. And Lord, we want to confess that not in every area of our lives, not in every moment of our days, someone could truly look at us if they saw our hearts and say that Christ is everything. Lord, we pray, give us hearts to forgive, to repent, and to be honest in Thy presence. But we look to Thy grace, and we look to Thy favor, and we look to Thy mercy, that we may be able to say with Paul, and really mean it, for to me to live is Christ, that we may be able to say also and to die is gain, and yet be happy to live because it's what's happening. It is what thou desirest for us and help us then to live for the good and for the happiness of others. And that will only happen if we're sharing Christ with others or living like Christ before others. Help us, Lord, in this way. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.